So that night I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone. Today we have Alex Banayan, who is the author of The Third Door, The Wild Quest to Uncover How the World's Most Successful People Launched Their Careers. So Banayan has been named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list and Business Insider's Most Powerful People Under 30. Benign has also presented the third door framework to business conferences and corporate leadership teams around the world, including Apple, Google, Nike, IBM, Snap, Salesforce, Disney, Harvard, and more. So Alex, how's it going? I am great, man. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So yeah, I'd love to hear a little more. I mean, I, I gave you a little intro um, and I would love to hear kind of from your mouth who you are and kind of what you do. So to me, you know, the way I see it, my I guess if I would call it even a professional career, sort of started when I was 18 and sort of by accident in the sense of this wasn't part of a master plan. You know, I started out as this 18-year-old kid, a freshman in college. I was actually at USC, you know, not too far from where your office is. Yep. And I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed staring up at the ceiling. And to understand why I was going, you know, through this life crisis, you have to understand I'm the son of Jewish immigrants which pretty much means I came out of the womb, my mom cradled me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. Yeah, just like Asian, just like my Asian parents. (laughs) Correct. And, you know, you know, God forbid you don't become a doctor and you become a lawyer. But, you know, at the very least, you get that master's degree. And as much as I joke about it, it was very real, you know, Um, you can probably relate, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, high school, I checked all the boxes, I took all the biology classes, I studied for the SATs, even went to pre-med summer camp when I was like 15. So by the time I got to college, I'm the pre-med of (laughs) pre-meds. You know, very quickly, I remember lying on this dorm room bed, looking at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they're sucking the life out of me. And at first, I assumed I was just being lazy. But very quickly, began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So Eric, now not only do I not know what I wanted to do with my life, I had no idea how the people who I looked up to, how they did it. You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? How did Spielberg become the youngest director in Hollywood history without a single hit under his belt? You know, this is what they don't teach you in school. So I just assumed there had to be a book with the answers. So I'm going through the library and just ripping through business books and biographies and self-help books, assuming there had to be a book that focused on this particular stage. And again, it wasn't about an age in life, but really a stage when you're you know, trying to get your foot in the door, trying to break through, how do you launch a dream, whether it's a business, whether it's a tech company, whether it's a book, how do you find a way to make it happen? And 
eventually I was left empty handed. So that's when my naive 18 year old thinking kicked in. And I thought, well, if no one's written the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? You know, I thought it'd be super simple. I would just call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else. I thought I'd be done in a few months. <laughs> that I assumed would be the easy part. The hard part I figured was getting the money to fund this journey. You know, I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. <laughs> so there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before final exams, I'm in the library doing what everyone's doing in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook and, you know, I see someone offering free tickets to The Price is Right. You know, it's the longest running game show in U.S. history. And it was filming not too far from where I went to college. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this book? You know, not my brightest moment. <laughs> but it's what you had. Yeah, you know, not my, you know, not my brightest moment, but I had a, you know, a bigger problem. I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. You know, I'd seen bits and pieces growing up when I was homesick from school, but I've never seen a full episode before. So I told myself it was a dumb idea and to not think about it. But I don't know if you've ever had, you know, one of these moments where an idea just keeps clawing itself back into your mind. Oh, always, all the time. I just forget all of them. <laughs> right? Yep. And that's what I tried to do. You know, I tried to forget it. I tried to push it out of my mind, but you know, for some reason it wouldn't go away. So I remember I was sitting at this round wooden table in the corner of the library, and I took out my spiral notebook and wrote, you know, best and worst case scenarios to prove to myself it was a bad idea. And I remember writing, you know, worst case scenarios, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stops talking to me. No, mom kills me. You know, there's like 20 cons. <laughs> and the only pro was maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it was almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study but I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I founded the book. How much was that? The sailboat, I sold it for, I think, like $17,000, which to a college student is a million bucks. Yeah. You know, I was taking all my friends to Chipotle, saying like, free guacamole for everybody. Yeah, you feel like a baller, yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember when I used to go to college. I, I mean, we we would uh, we'd go to the casino, and I'd you know I, I'd win like a couple hundred bucks, and I'd buy everyone like Carl's Jr. afterward. I'd feel like a big baller. So totally get where you're at, man. <laughs> exactly. Okay, cool. So you funded the book. I, I'm also curious too. I, I want to. I used to watch the Prices Right uh, from time to time when I was sick too. So which which game did you actually play to get the 17 grand, or is it a series of games? Well, so I did the. So, you know, there's the opening round, and then there's that bonus round, mm -hmm. and then there's the wheel, and then there's the showcase showdown. But the funny thing about me is because I had never seen a full episode of the show before, my hacking of the game show was less Albert Einstein and more Forrest Gump, but it ended up working out really well. Okay, so what was the, what was the hack? Give us the, give us the goods. So the biggest thing, you know, the full story is like 30 minutes, and I know we're, we're keeping this tight. The biggest singular hack was... You know, I sort of did this 80-20 analysis where I was like, all right, there's 300 people in the audience and one wins. You know, how am I going to break this down? Mm. And I realized there's 300 in the audience, but only eight get called down as contestants. And then out of the eight, 
one gets chosen as a winner. So it's actually not one in 300 odds. It's one in eight odds if you get called down. Right. The eight out of 300 odds is the harder thing to tackle. Mm-hmm. So whereas every other contestant for the most part who wants to hack the prices right is studying how to be the perfect contestant, I, I spent all my time being how to be a perfect audience member so I get called down. And I think it's actually a good, you know, I, it's funny, I haven't talked about this much, but I know, you know, you are a very, you know, data-driven guy too. I just think a lot of people put emphasis on the obvious stuff and not on the thing that, you know, if you spent five minutes to look at, that's not where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Right. And for me, it was putting the emphasis on mastering that I'm the eight out of the 300. So I figured out, I pulled my all-nighter researching how that process works. And I found out there was a producer, an undercover producer, and I learned everything about them. And, you know, the whole story is pretty preposterous, but ended up working out really well. Yeah, I think the key thing here is whether it's the price is right, the price is wrong, or, or whatever game show you decide. <laughs> I mean, you you optimize for it, right? It's not like I think all the crazy things out there, like you know the Uber, SpaceX, all these all these things started out as crazy ideas, right? And even this price is right idea, the idea to fund your book started out as a crazy idea, but you optimize for it. At least that's my takeaway. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing that I've realized is that the, one of the best decisions I had made was the night before I went on the game show. Even though I had to study for finals, I pretty much had to ask myself, and I remember writing in my journal that night, I don't have a lot of time, and I can either spend my time studying on finals, spend my time studying the prices right, or try to split my time doing both. Right. And I just came to a realization when I was 18, which was I'd rather do one thing really well, because both things are hard. You know, I'm not a perfect student, so getting an A on a final is hard. I didn't know how to play the prices right. Winning that would be hard. To split my only research, which was time and research, would be you know setting myself up for failure. And I was like, I might as well go all in on one thing. Right now, idiotically at the time, I chose a game show, but in hindsight, it was a very good decision. Yeah, it, it works out. You, you never, I mean, right? You never figured it out until like after the fact, right? Well, you know, one thing to, to call—I I think this is a, a nice um, segue into—you know—I do want to talk about the book a little bit because you talked about going all in on one thing, and when you talked about. Or when you think about one of the high performers of the world, Warren Buffett, he talks about focus. It's the same thing with Bill Gates as well. So what are some key lessons you can share from within the book? And then I want to talk about how you actually got these people. Well, it's funny is you actually brought up Buffett and Gates. And one of my favorite stories, you know, the fun thing about going on this journey was not only was I able to do all these interviews, but leading up to the interviews, I would spend three to four, sometimes even six months researching everything I can, you know, reading 14, 15 books on Buffett, you know, reading thousands of pages on Bill Gates. And one of my favorite stories from my research is from the day Bill Gates and Warren Buffett first met. And, you know, the way they actually met at the time, you know, Bill Gates, you know, obviously was the CEO of Microsoft. Buffett was one of the richest men in America. And it was sort of a blind date set up by Bill Gates' mother, and Warren Buffett was coming out with a couple of friends in a, you know, a small little car to a little picnic that Bill Gates' mother was planning. And Bill Gates was in Seattle running Microsoft, and he told his mom that morning, I'm not coming out to your picnic. 
you know, things are getting crazy at the office, even though it's a Saturday, I have to stay. And she's like apoplectic. She's like, you know, you have to come. This guy Warren's coming all the way from Omaha, Nebraska to meet you. <laughs> you have to come. And Bill's like, mom, 0% chance. I cannot come. I don't have time to meet some guy who's literally his only job is to just pick stocks. Like he doesn't create anything of value. You know, this is Bill Gates, you know, just talking shit. He had zero interest to meet Buffett. And Bill Gates' mom's like, please, don't do it for, you know, Buffett, do it for me. Just come for 20 minutes. So Bill Gates actually took it. If I remember correctly, took a helicopter from Microsoft to this picnic <laughs> for, just to make his mom, you know, calm down for 20 minutes. And, you know, he comes out, you know, says hi to his family uh, and meets this guy, Warren Buffett. And I believe the first question Warren Buffett asked Bill Gates the second they met was, you know, what makes Microsoft in a better position than another tech company like IBM. You know, what's Microsoft's moat that IBM can never get across? And that just like blasted off into this like multi-hour conversation. You know, Bill Gates obviously decided to end up staying. They talked for hours. And then at the dinner table that night, you know, this is the first time they've ever met. You know, they're sitting at the family dinner table and Bill Gates' father, you know, sitting at the table is, you know, his son, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And he, you know, takes the opportunity to ask them, the question that you know anybody on earth would be dying to ask. What's the single trait you attribute to your success? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates spit out the same answer at the same time. And they both said, focus. Yep. And what's crazy about that is that you know, there's a million things that actually contribute to their success, but that's the thing that they prize the most. And one of my favorite quotes comes from Steve Jobs, which is that focus isn't saying no to a bad idea. Anyone can do that. Focus is saying no to the thousand good ideas so you can focus on the one great one. 100%. Cool. So we got focus in there. And then just so the audience knows too, I mean, who are some of the people that you actually have in, in the book? So the book is, you know, chronicles the seven-year journey. And for business, I spoke to Bill Gates, for music, Lady Gaga, science, Jane Goodall, poetry, Maya Angelou, uh, Steve Wozniak, Larry King, Quincy Jones, Tim Ferriss, Tony Shea, Jessica Alba, Pitbull. So it's been a really fun adventure. Great. Okay, cool. So, okay, we got the lesson around focus from, uh, we got Buffett, Jobs, and Gates. Is there one more lesson you can share one of your favorite stories? I'll share, because I know a lot of people, you know, in marketing and in sales really have to deal with persistence and rejection. Yep. So I'll actually share one of the stories, and I know you had mentioned earlier, you know, how these interviews came to be. Yep. This is probably one of the most preposterous stories, but the lesson, so this takes place about halfway through the journey. I, and the context is important because I had just spent eight months, you know, chasing down Warren Buffett. And I ended up hacking his shareholders meeting, but it ended up blowing up, you know, being this disastrous train crash of a situation. And I ended up finding myself, you know, back at home in Los Angeles, pretty much stuck in bed for two weeks. Just because you're emo. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, what's funny is when you're chasing a dream and you're pouring your heart into something, the rejections are debilitating. It feels like it's your entire life. And you know, for two weeks, I'm just pulling the covers over my head. And one of my best friends, Corwin was like, dude, come on, man, you gotta, you know, get back up. And, you know, we go out to lunch, we go to a grocery store and get like, you know, some sandwiches. And we're sitting on the sidewalk outside this grocery store, eating these sandwiches. And I'm just, you know, doing what I do with my best friends, which is just like venting and complaining. 
And, you know, I'm just telling him about Buffett and the disaster and Corn's like, come on, man, don't you have any other interviews lined up? I'm like, dude, I got nothing. And he's like, come on, man. You know, let's say you had an interview with somebody. Who would you, who would you want to interview? What would you want to ask? And he's like, dude, I'd probably, you know, fuck that up too, man. And he's like, look, you can't be so hard on yourself. Interviewing isn't a science. It's an art. And as he's saying that, the most miraculous moment of the entire journey happened. A car pulled up and parked right in front of us in a loading zone with, you know, the car had tinted windows. The door swings open and out walks Larry King. And, you know, I don't know if you're anything like me, but when things line up so perfectly, that's actually when I get the most scared. Yep. I just get paralyzed. You know, I call it the flinch. What do I do next? Exactly. And I completely turned to stone. And I remember Larry King walking right past me and I didn't say a thing. And he walks right into the grocery store sliding doors. And my friend Corwin is like, dude, what the fuck? You know, why didn't you say anything? And I'm like, you know, the flinch is very good at making excuses. I'm like, oh, I didn't want to bother him. Corwin's like, dude, you could have at least said hi. And, you know, of course I kept making more excuses. I'm like, I don't know. He's in the grocery store. There's no way I can find him at this point. And Corn's like, dude, He's 80 years old. How far could he have gotten? (laughs) So, you know, very reluctantly, I stand up and I go into this grocery store to search for Larry King. And, you know, I'm walking around the bakery section. No Larry. I jog over to the produce section. There's fruits. There's vegetables. There's no Larry. And at this point, I remember he parked in the loading zone. So he must be leaving any second now. So this bolt of adrenaline kicks in and I start sprinting through this grocery store, running down every aisle. No, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry. And I realized, all right, he has to be at the frozen food section. So I cut a left, you know, I dodged this old lady. I'm running down the frozen food section. No, Larry. And I figure he has to be at the checkout counter. So I sprint to the checkout counter. No, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry. Then what happens? You know, at this point, I want to kick myself, right? He had been right in front of me and I didn't do a thing. Mm. And I end up walking out in the parking lot. You know, I'm just staring down at my feet. And I look up and 20 feet in front of me is Larry King, you know, suspenders and all. Yep. And I don't know what gets into me, but I feel this rumbling in the pit of my stomach. And I end up yelling at the top of my lungs, Mr. King! And the echo in the parking lot was so loud. You know, everyone in the parking lot shot their heads around. And the poor guy, Larry King, has had quadruple bypass surgery. (laughs) (laughs) He ends up, like, essentially jumping in the air and turning his head around slowly as if he's looking at the Grim Reaper. And I end up, you know, just running after him going, Mr. King, Mr. King, Mr. King, my name's Alex. You know, I'm 19 years old. I've always wanted to say hi. And he's like... Okay. Hi. And he keeps walking away. Oh, no. So, you know, I don't know what to do. So I'm just like awkwardly following him out to his car. Finally, he gets to his car. He stuffs his groceries in the back. He opens the driver's side door. And I'm like, wait, Mr. King, can I go to breakfast with you? And he looks at me like I'm a lunatic. But before he answers, he looks around and sees there's like a dozen people on the sidewalk watching this go down. So he very reluctantly is like, okay, 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 okay. And I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much. Um, All right, I'll I'll see you tomorrow. And he's about to get into the car. And I'm like, wait, Mr. King, what time? And he just looks at me and shuts the door. (laughs) 
<laughs> Mr. King, you know, I'm yelling through the windshield, what time? And he just looks at me and starts the engine. I'm now standing, Eric, I'm literally standing in front of his car, waving my arms. Mr. King, what time? And he just looks at me and he's like, nine o'clock and just speeds off. Did you guys agree on a spot to meet at? Yes, he told me where he he told me where he has breakfast. Got it. And you know, I show up to you know this little bagel shop, you know, with all these little tables, and you know, of course, at the corner booth is Larry King with his best friends, and there was an open chair at the table. But you know, I had some time to reflect on how I had acted the day before, so I thought I should be a, a little bit more gentle. So <laughs> I'm like, "Hey there, good morning, Mr. King," and he just looks at me and he's like, <sighs> "You know," he just mumbles. So I figure, you know, maybe he needs a little time before, you know, before he's ready. So I sit at the table next to him waiting for him to call me over. Ten minutes goes by, 30 minutes, an hour passes, and finally he stands up. And he walks right toward me, and, you know, I can feel my cheeks lifting. And then he walks right past me and heads for the exit. Oh, no. And I remember, you know, putting a hand up in the air, and I was like, Mr. Mr. King? And he's like, what is it, kid? What do you want? And at that point, you know, I felt this sharp, familiar pain in my chest, and I just looked at him, and I was like, honestly, I just wanted some advice on how to interview people. <laughs> and he just looks at me, and this slow smile spreads across his face, almost as if to say, you know, why didn't you say so? And he ends up putting his hand on my shoulder and gives me the best, you know, one-minute monologue of interview advice. And... At the end, he looks up to the ceiling as if he's debating something in his mind. And then he looks back in my eyes and he goes, all right, kid, tomorrow, 8.45, see you here. And I show up the next morning at 8.45. You know, he waves me over to his breakfast table, asks me why I want to learn how to interview. I tell him about the book. He's like, okay, I'm in. And over the course of the past five years, I've been to breakfast with him over 50 times. Wow. So, you know, it sounds like everything is just like, it seems like everything's about to fall apart. And then miraculously, the stars align. Larry King just shows up and then you start this relationship and one thing leads to another. Yeah. And, you know, that's definitely the most miraculous story of the book. But, you know, there's tons of stories of things, you know, falling apart and not coming back together. Yeah. With Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, I mentioned with Warren Buffett. And I think sometimes some of the biggest lessons come from the biggest failures. Makes sense. I think, you know, that was the Thomas Jefferson quote, right? The harder you work, the luckier you get. So you just made your own luck. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about luck is, and I got, you know, one of the best pieces of advice on luck from a man named Chi Lu, who grew up in Shanghai, China with no running water, no electricity. You know, people were so poor in his village that he grew up People had deformities from malnutrition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by the time that he went to college, he was making the most money he's ever made, which was $7 a month. Fast forward 20 years later, and he's a president at Microsoft. And it's one of the most remarkable stories in the entire tech industry, which no one talks about. And one of the best things Chilu taught me is his perception of luck, which is, and, you know, in the book, I obviously go into the story in more detail, but one of his biggest takeaways was that luck is like a bus. If you're standing at the bus stop, even if you miss the opportunity, the next bus is going to come around. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have your bus fare in the form of preparation, you'll never be able to get on. I love it. 
All right, man. So I want to work towards wrapping up here. I just got a couple more questions for you. So, you know, you've, you've done the book. I mean, you know, everyone should, we'll, we'll talk about how people can get the book afterwards, but in terms of the results that you've seen from the book personally, you know, what have you gotten from it? Cause we've had people on the podcast in the past that have said, Eric, you know, you got to do the book. The book's a game changer. I'm curious to kind of get your thoughts as well as to kind of what it's done for you. Well, first of all, it's been a dream. I spent seven years working on this, you know, pouring my heart into it. And there's something just crazy. You know, the book came out six or seven months ago at this point. And there's something about seeing it out in the world, not only just having the book out there, that wasn't what I cared about. What I cared about was, you know, and I know it sounds cheesy, but I just believe this, man. I just believe that if all these people came together, not for press, not to promote anything, but really to share their best wisdom with the next generation, young people could do so much more. So getting messages on Instagram and over email and on Twitter of the impact it's had on readers has been the by far most fulfilling thing in my life. And thankfully at the same time, the book has also been a a really big commercial success, which I couldn't be happier about. It just became a national bestseller. Um, It's being translated into 13 different languages around the world. So I couldn't be happier. Great. Congratulations on that. And, you know, I would be not doing the audience a favor if I didn't ask kind of what type of metrics wise, what has the book done for you? You talked about bestseller. I mean, can you share kind of the, the, the range of, you know, maybe revenue generator or number of readers? What can you share around that? The impact's been really good. Obviously, I can't, you know, share specific metrics just because it's, you know, Penguin Random House. But what I do know is that what's interesting is, look, I'm not one of those guys that's like, I don't care about money. Of course I care about money. Dude, I want to live a really nice life too. Obviously, the first reason I did this book was for this mission. But at the same time, financially, it's been really helpful. What's fascinating about books is that the industry has moved to being much more like the music industry, where, yes, you know, Lady Gaga makes a lot of money from album streams, but she makes way more money going on tour. Mm. And business books have sort of started falling into a similar market, which makes sense because the internet has done the same thing for books as it has done for music. And, you know, keynote speaking is a very, you know, thankfully generous industry where, you know, like you mentioned, I can go to Intuit and IBM and, Financially, it's really helpful. Got it. And when you say that, I mean, you know, we've had a couple of speakers on on this podcast. Just, just give give us a range, kind of when you do a keynote speech. So let's say you know the book kind of gets your name out there. You, you're able to speak at places. What kind of range can people expect once they have a successful book like yours? So a good like rule of thumb, especially for you know, let's say it's a a big bestseller in the business category, corporations will pay. You know, depending on who the author is. $20,000 for, you know, relatively new author, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is, and people, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk are doing $100,000 a speech. Mm. Um, so the ranges do change. And of course, I don't want to share specific numbers, but that's sort of the different calibers you go to. And then there's people who, let's say, are very new to the industry who might be doing, you know, $5,000 a speech. Right. Makes total sense. Cool. So two more questions from my side. Uh, so, you know, you reached out to me, I think, um, which is really creative. Uh, you, you reach out to me through Instagram. That's kind of become like a new thing now to, you know, uh, collaborate with people, right? Um, you know, especially on podcasts. So there's got to be some type of goal. That, well, the goal is obviously to, you know, get your name out. But when you do this podcast tour, what was the expectation from it? Because it takes a lot of your time, right? Like setting up the podcast, you know, investing 30 minutes, one hour of your time per podcast. Like, uh, why even bother with the podcast stuff? It sounds so unscalable, but yet everybody does it when they release a new book. 
So what's fascinating is actually very scalable in the sense of, you know, it's not scalable in the sense of your time, right? but the ripple effect is so remarkable. So what's cool about this conversation, Eric, is, you know, you and I are talking, but there's also a third member of this conversation who's listening to this, you know, in their earphones, you know, maybe while they're in the subway, while they're in the car, while they're at the gym. And what's beautiful about podcasts is this is in a way like so intimate, you know, I listen to podcasts too, and I know how intimate it feels on my end when I'm listening. And it's just remarkable that, you know, if you have a book and you go on good morning America in 2019, yes, you might get a lot of eyeballs and it's good for brands, you know, brand perception, but you're not really going deep. You know, I wouldn't have been able to share, you know, that Larry King story or, you know, there's something beautiful about being able to go really deep in the sense of not only sharing fun stories, but also sharing the insights. And that's why I love podcasts so much. And it's made the biggest difference in the launch of this book. Love it. And how many do you think you've been on since the launch of the book? That's so funny you ask. I literally just counted last week because somebody on my team had asked me and I looked it up. I, since the book launch, which is pretty much, let's say, you know, in the past year, I've been on more than 60 podcasts. Wow. Just, wow, that's that's crazy, just in the last year. Okay, great. So people are getting a, a range of what that looks like. Actually, I, I had another guy on the, on the podcast, named name is Steve Sims, and he, you know, really well-connected guy, and he was like, yeah, I've, I've been on like you know, 180 or so. I'm just like, that is insane. But, you know, apparently it's, it's like, it works for everyone. You know, all the big names do it. One more question, actually, maybe two more. So what I've noticed, I mean, you, you've given, you know, I think two or three stories, and it's not easy for everyone to be a good storyteller. So how did you become good or better at storytelling? So two things. Number one, and it's like, I hated this answer, especially when I was just starting out, I hated, hated, hated this answer because it's so not sexy. And the answer is practice. And what I mean by that is I don't mean like practicing in front of your mirror. I mean, I've probably given, you know, I've been a professional speaker, forget about storytelling just in life, but I'm saying, you know, professionally for seven years now. So that's one thing, you know, I've probably given 10,000 talks throughout my life, unpaid and paid, you know, going back to my childhood, all the way up, plus seven years as a prof- on you know the professional circuit. That's number one, and I wish there was a sexier answer. Number two, though, is a little sexier, which is there are ways you can learn storytelling. And again, you can't hack it without the practice, but you can do the practice and hack it and go much faster. And some of the biggest things, you know, I can literally give right now two things to listeners that can radically transform your storytelling. And I actually do this with different corporations. You know, I do storytelling workshops and I'll give two things really quickly. You ready? Yep. Number one. So if you look at a good story, let's say, let's use Harry Potter, for example, you know, one of the best stories of the last century. You look at Harry Potter, you know, it's a fiction story. So it's a good example. There's two elements that are critical that apply to every single story that most people don't think about. The first one is you need a relatable origin, right? So you look at Harry Potter and here's this kid who's sleeping under the cupboard, has no friends, is getting bullied. Look, most people don't sleep under the cupboard, you know, under a staircase, but they can relate to feeling like an outcast, not feeling relatable. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're writing a book or if you're just at a business conference and you're meeting someone and someone says, hey, what's your story? You know, there's a difference between saying, hi, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. 
versus saying, you know, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and, you know, my parents separated when I was 10. And ever since then, I've sort of been on this path of trying to find out who I am. Mm. You know, there's a deeper connection. And so that's the first thing. I think people focus on just the facts and they don't explain why the facts matter. So they'll say I'm from Columbus, but they won't say I'm from Columbus. And I ever since I entered college, I've never known I've been on the search for my life purpose. You know, something that actually someone's like can see themselves in you. That's number one. Have a compelling origin that makes you relate. Number two is focusing on the most important element of the story, which is conflict and tension. When a lot of people tell stories, they want to tell the story in a way that might make them look good. You know, and then my business did this and then it grew here and then it grew there. That's not a story. That's a brag sheet. That's bragging. Yep. Right. A story is conflict and tension. And, you know, one of the great metaphors that I heard from Aaron Sorkin is if you think of like a clothesline, you know, with pins where you hang up clothes to dry, the tension and the, you know, the tension is how tight you make that clothesline. The more tension, the tighter the line. And then the obstacles along the way are the different clothespins along the way. So if you don't have tension, you just have a loosey-goosey rope and you can't hang anything on it. It doesn't matter how crazy the story is. It doesn't matter if Harry, you know, gets accepted to Hogwarts or, you know, if he's not dealing with a life and death situation with Voldemort, there is no story. It does not matter how funny his adventures are. If there's not life and death, and, you know, I'll give you another example. Let's say you're telling a story. And again, I learned this from studying Aaron Sorkin. Let's say you're telling a story of a road trip you took with your friends. That's not a story. No one, you know, no one cares. Mm. But if you're taking a road trip across the country because your dad just got diagnosed with cancer and he has one month to live and you have to get across the country, now all of a sudden when your car breaks down in the middle of the road, everyone is on the edge of their seats trying to figure out if you were able to make it to see your dad. Love it. That's so practical. You said, you know, you said boring, but I think practice is definitely important. But the, the, what you just gave right now, that framework is going to be so powerful for, for our listeners. So I'm actually going to add one more question. What is one book you'd recommend that is not yours? I'll recommend this because I know, you know, you and I and a lot of people listening are very entrepreneurial and love data, love, you know, hacking things and optimizing. So I want to give a book that actually addresses the parts of our lives that many of us, you know, myself included, tend to shy away from. Mm. And if anyone's going through an exceptionally hard time, whether it's dealing with death, a breakup, a business falling apart, relationships falling apart, if your life feels like it's completely unraveling, there's a book called When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron that completely changed my life. I've bought in copies and given it to all my family. My sisters have read it. My best friends have read it. When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. For anybody going through a hard time, I could not recommend it more. Love it. Thank you so much for that. So Alex, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online and also pick up a copy of your book? Thank you so much, man. Well, you know, the book is available everywhere. People like to buy books. So whether that's Amazon or Kindle or Audible, I read the audiobook myself, so it made it a ton of fun. And if you end up buying the book after listening to this podcast, definitely say what's up to me on social so I can say thank you. My Instagram, Twitter is all the same. It's just at Alex Benayan, A-L-E-X-B-A-N-A-Y-A-N. All right, Alex, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.